All right, we have a couple things to announce before we start the sermon, um, just so you know kind of where we're headed, especially for a lot of you that may be joining us at home uh, over the internet. We spend every time uh, or every week spend time opening up the Bible. We believe that as we open up the Bible, we're exposing Jesus both to the curious and the committed, and it's helping us to grow and seeing how good he is for us and to us. And so we're going to spend some time doing that. We're in the middle of a series in uh, prayer. We're looking at kind of key passages on prayer, and today because, especially because of the chaos that's going on, we're focusing in on what it means to worship in the chaos. We're going to be looking at Psalm 40, so I'm going to tell you now um, so you can take some time to find that page in your Bible. Uh, But I've got a couple announcements to make before we look at it. Uh, Number one, this summer we're doing Impact Bible Clubs, and just want to let you know what those are, and this is an exciting thing that we do as a church, and we're going to be involving Uh, every age group of the church to do this. Our teenagers lead the way. Our teens will be trained um, to lead clubs with kids in public parks and in backyards where they're sharing the gospel, playing games, getting to know neighborhood kids. And so it's a great opportunity to reach out and to share the love of Jesus with others across the city. But we need a lot of the adults to help out with this. We're going to need adults to help make meals. We're going to need adults to help drive. We're going to need adults to help host at the different locations. So you'll be hearing a lot more about this over the next several weeks. We're excited about this. It's something coming up. The teens will be training um, starting March 29th on Sundays after church. They'll be training in the Sunday school area just right after church, but then we'll actually have the clubs and the carnivals June 8th through 12th. Okay, so that's something we're getting ready for, something we're really excited about, and something we want to invite you into with us, because it's something we need the whole church to be able to pull off. It's one of the best things that we do all year long. Um, Now, we do that to share Jesus with people, and today we have the great opportunity to baptize a couple of people who want to... That's right. Thank you very much. we got a loud and rowdy crowd of 10. All right. Amen. So if you're at home wondering, like, what's going on? I thought nobody was supposed to be there. Well, we got 10 people here, a few to watch their friends get baptized. Um, So we're still staying under our... Oh, I just cut off. We're still staying under our rule of less than 100, um, trying to maintain social distancing. We have not been shaking hands or kissing this morning. So, um, But I want to invite up our guys that are going to get baptized. I'm going to bring David up first. So David, will you come up first? I knew you'd love to go first, David, so... David's our shy one, so I'm making him go first. We're going to have you let us know who you are and give us a little bit of information about why you want to do this. So I'm coming over this way so we can be in the middle so people can see you. But don't be nervous. It's going to be great. Hello, I'm David. Hi, David. Hi, David. I love Jesus. Mm. Amen. I'm proud to be here. Mm. And I want to follow Jesus because I love him very much. And thank you all for being here. I love you. Amen. Thank you so much, brother. So for those of you at home or those of you here, uh, what baptism is, is it's a ritual that Christians have been practicing for 2,000 years where we show with our bodies what Jesus has done for us spiritually. And so going down into the water is a symbol of Jesus washing away your sin, although we know the water doesn't actually do that. We know that Jesus does that. But going down in the water is also a symbol of death and resurrection. So when you feel the cold water, you'll understand that symbol. Um, <laughs> It's a symbol of death and resurrection. Colossians talks about we're buried with Christ, we're raised again to new life. So again, we're symbolizing something that we know to be true because we're depending on Jesus. So I'm going to invite you into the water down here. I get to go on the backside out of the water, so I'm spoiled here. And I do have a waterproof watch. Yeah, it's cold. Sorry about that, Dave. We have a heater. It's just not working. We think the heater got coronavirus, so. All right, one more step. 
Sorry, man. You okay? Is your doctor going to be mad at me for freezing you? Okay, we're going to turn you around this way because you've got a little bench that you can have support for there. David, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Yes, sir. Well, it's my joy and privilege as your pastor and also as your brother in Christ to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good job, buddy. Good job, man. Proud of you. That was good. You did great. Just a towel for you. You're welcome. God bless you, man. Love you too, brother. All right, we have one more. Gary, can you come on up? All right, you want to introduce yourself? I'm Gary. Hi, Gary. I just want to say that I love Jesus, and I was trying to... Without Jesus, I can't get through sin. And I know mm-hmm. that I, the only way to conquer, I was trying it on my own, and I can't mm-hmm. do it on my own. Mm-hmm. I know I need Jesus. And I just, all praise goes to our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Gary. It's cold. Yeah, just a little. Woo. All right. Death and resurrection. Okay, turn this way. All right, Gary, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Yes, sir. Well, based on your profession of faith, it's my joy as your brother in Christ and as your pastor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Woo! Good job, Thank brother. You. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. Well done. So since we're not gathering in full force, we're not able to have communion together today as a church, but we are able to enjoy baptism together. So that's a pretty special, pretty awesome thing. So we're thankful for that. Um, so now I want to introduce you back into our series. So we've been doing this series on prayer called, called Talking with God, the Ancient Art of Prayer. And what we're doing in the series is we're looking at key passages. And so this is the time period some people call Lent. Uh, we're not strict Lent observers, but we have said, you know what, this is a historic time. Let's take this time. Just really focus on prayer. Uh, What does it look like for us to be people of prayer who care for our neighbors, uh, love our families well, are devoted to God, are learning in new ways uh, to talk to him, to communicate with him? And so we've been looking at key passages. This week, I was already planning on looking at worship because worship is a type of prayer, specifically when we sing in church. Singing in church, uh, to quote Elf, is like talking, but your voice goes up and down, right? Um, And it's like talking with God and talking to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I was already kind of preparing a worship sermon. I was looking at some key texts, so already writing that over the last couple of weeks as we prepared our hearts to worship God uh, and to see that as an aspect of prayer. Uh, But with the pandemic breaking out, I did adjust it a little bit, and I actually switched my text. So I had one text that I was looking at in the Psalms and one text in the New Testament that talks about worship, and decided to switch to another text which is Psalm 40, because I think it focuses in a little more, not just on worship in general, but what does it look like to worship in chaos? What does it look like to worship in the chaos? And so Psalm 40 has always been one of my favorites 
Uh, there was a, a band back in the 80s named U2 that did a version of Psalm 40. And that's just one of those that I go back to in my times of chaos. It's a, a prayer to God, a worship song to him in the midst of craziness when everything's turned upside down. Um, also want to remind you of the resources that we have. Uh, we've got this resurrection prayer guide you can download online if you want to have just simple daily prayers. We wrote this to give you an introduction to what does it look like to have just basic, simple daily prayer. I encourage you to download this and check it out. Um, also, four books here that I want to recommend. Uh, a lot of you might be staying home uh, with your kids or not getting out as much. It's a great time to order books, right? You can't order wipes or hand sanitizer, but you can probably still order books. Um, so two specifically on prayer, one called Praying Backwards by Brian Chapel. Um, another called A Praying Life by Paul Miller, two of my favorite books on prayer. They're really helpful in helping us to understand prayer. And then just more generally on the disciplines of grace, like prayer, Bible reading, fellowship, worship, all of those things together. One is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. This other one is called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. I just want to recommend again more resources. Okay, so now I'm really starting. Now I'm starting the timer. Now it's sermon time, okay? Um, so we're going to spend some time in Psalm chapter 40, worship in the chaos. And so the Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. If you want to open there, Psalm chapter 40. Um, before we look at it, I just want to share a little experience I had yesterday. Um, we had a men's breakfast at the church, and after the men's breakfast, uh, my wife had texted me during the men's breakfast and asked if I could pick up a few things at the grocery store. I was like, of course, happy to go to the grocery store for my wife. I'd love to do that. Um, so when I got to the grocery store, I texted her, hey, I'm here at HEB. I should be home soon. Heart, 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 kiss, 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 something like that. Um, and she sent me back a note and said, thank you. And then she said, is it really apocalyptic out there? She was asking, like, is it crazy, right? Apocalypse is kind of like a word for the end of the world. Like, is it, is it crazy? Is it nuts? Is it apocalyptic? And, and I texted her back. Uh, I just wanted to get this clear. I was like, well, it doesn't seem any more crowded than the Super Bowl or Thanksgiving. You know, it just it seemed crowded, but it wasn't completely insane. But I said, but people do look kind of scared. So I'm whistling and smiling at everyone in the name of Jesus. You know, so I was just trying to, like, bring as much cheer as I could as I'm cruising down the grocery aisle you know, wiping my hands repeatedly with the cart wipes, um, just smiling, whistling, trying to be an agent of joy in the midst of the chaos. And I think really that's, that's our job as the people of God. Our job is to not deny the chaos. Our job is to not lie about it and say, it doesn't exist. There is no chaos. Everything is fine. But our job is to bring some joy, some hope. And, and we do that by worshiping. And so worshiping in the chaos, again, does not mean denying the struggle that we're in. Worship in the chaos means seeing that God is our only hope. And, and really, guys, chaos is sometimes the best time for us to learn that. I know just talking specifically about singing, worship as singing. Of course, worship can be all of life, but specifically worship as singing. Some of the sweetest times of singing to the Lord, some of the most deep and rich and meaningful times I've ever had were in the hardest times of my life where I didn't know where else to go, and I show up at church because I've made that a discipline to come back and realign myself with who Jesus is, and I recognize he is my only hope, and everything else has been pulled out from underneath me, right? The rug's been pulled out. Everything else is going crazy, but, but I can trust God. So we're going to read from Psalm 40 where we see David, one of the major psalmists, one of the major writers of the Psalms, a, a prophet, an Old Testament king, 
see him speaking of the patience and the worship that we can have uh, when we're in difficult times. So Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them. Yes, they are more than can be told. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. I'm going to pray for us and ask the Lord to help us to make this real in our own lives. God, we pray that you would teach us how to tell of your greatness, even though there's more than we can tell, even though there's more than, than we can explain. It's beyond us, but, but we're called to tell, and we're called, even before that, Lord, to see your goodness. So, Father, we know that you were with us because your Spirit reminds us, but we pray that your Word now, in a special way, would, would open our hearts and open our minds to see that, to see the truth and the reality of your availability, of your greatness, of your sovereignty, of your trustworthiness, even in the midst of chaos. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So worship in the chaos. Again, I want to define it. It doesn't mean we deny the chaos is there. It doesn't mean that we see there's no chaos. There's nothing bad happening over there. You know, pay no attention to what's behind the curtain. No, we're, we're admitting the chaos and yet we're running to God as our only solution. A couple of weeks ago, our church talked from Psalm 42 about lament, this idea that lament is actually a kind of praise. To, to cry out to God is, in a sense, to praise God because you're bringing your cry, you're bringing your hurt and your concern to him. And so we'll see echoes of that in this text as well, that we're called to worship in the chaos. One of my favorite biblical counseling phrases comes from a biblical counselor named James Noriega, and this was quoted in an, another book called Redemption. But he says, We worshiped our way into this mess, and by God's grace, we'll worship our way out. And what he's saying there is that we all worship something. And at all times, we're worshiping, we're giving worth, we're saying something is worthy. At all times, we're doing that, whether it will be God or or something else. And so often, we worship our way into a mess by worshiping the wrong things, by worshiping uh, stability in society, right? Uh, and it's all ripped apart. And then we realize again, oh yeah, God's the only one I can really trust. He's my only real rock and real security and real fortress. And so we worship our way often into messes, but by God's grace, we can worship our way out of them. So there are three things I want us to see as we move through this text, Psalm 40. Number one, worship tells others. Worship by nature is sharing what you love with someone else. You're saying, this is great, and other people are hearing you say that. Worship tells others. It's a big part of Psalm 40. Secondly, we'll see that worship reorganizes our life. Worship is going to reorganize our life. It's going to make an impact impact on how we actually live. And then finally, worship works during the worst of times. Worship works during the worst of times, and we see this in the second half of Psalm 40, which what I want you to understand is some 
critical scholars, and, and what critical scholar means is it's the scholars that study the Bible but aren't sure how much they can really trust it, right? Um, those critical scholars often see the second half of, of Psalm 40 as not going with the first half. And I would argue it's because they don't understand the supernatural work of God. The supernatural work of a God who can say, there's difficulty and there's joy in the same reality that we live by faith in Jesus. So worship works even when everything else is falling apart in the worst of times. So first of all, worship tells others. Worship tells others. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 5. Worship tells others. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It starts off, I waited patiently for the Lord. When everything's crazy in society, we're going to need a lot of extra patience, right? You're going to feel like this is not normal. This is frustrating. There might be economic stresses. There might be um, your kid's schedule being messed up, your work schedule being messed up, uh, not being able to find what you need at the grocery store, long lines at the gas tank, you know, just all kinds of craziness because just the normal sequence of events is upset. It's turned upside down. And that's going to require extra patience for us. And he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He's talking about like clay, like quicksand, something you're stuck in and you can't get out. Any of you watch a show when you were kids, someone getting stuck in quicksand? I used to watch Tarzan movies all the time when I was a little kid. As a matter of fact, my elementary years, we didn't go to church, and so I generally watched singing cowboy shows and Tarzan shows on Sunday mornings. That was kind of my church for a few years in the elementary years. Um, and I actually Googled it. If you ever do get stuck in quicksand, the best thing to do is to not panic. Does that sound familiar? It's also the best thing to do when there's a pandemic, okay? Don't panic. And if you are stuck in quicksand, it says to lean back, to equally distribute your weight, and to backstroke out of the quicksand. So there's some physical steps that you can take. But what does the text tell us here? The text tells us not to ultimately trust in the fact that we've Googled how to escape from quicksand or miry bogs. The text says, I called out to the Lord. He's my ultimate hope. And this is a really confusing thing for those of us that love Jesus and follow him and trust in his sovereignty. The Bible says simultaneously, take the steps that you can take, but make your ultimate trust in him. That's real confusing because, you know, social media, if you're on social media, it's a place where it seems like we aggregate the most extreme crazy voices, right? So one voice is trust God by not taking any steps. And another voice is, take all these steps and don't trust God at all, right? The Christian has to walk that line of, okay, God, what do you want me to do? What's my responsibility? What have you put before me that I can do? I can wash hands. Okay, I'll wash hands. We'll do some social distancing. Okay, we'll do some social distancing. But ultimately, I'm going to trust in you, God. I'm going to trust in you. And so this is a great time when everything's crazy. It's a great time for us to practice that. Like, I can do some things, but ultimately, I have to trust God, right? So... Maybe David didn't have Google, he didn't know the backstroke, he didn't know the steps to take, but, but you can trust God. Ultimately, we take steps that we can take, grab for a root, grab for a rope, try to pull yourself out of that bog, but you call out to the Lord. You say, God, you're really the only one that can rescue me in any situation. The other thing I want you to see is repeatedly in the Psalms and in good Christian art and poetry, we're given a physical reality that is a metaphor or a simile for a spiritual reality. And we see a clue of this here because he's talking about quicksand and miry bog or slippery clay, depending on your translation. But he also talks about the pit of destruction. And the pit of destruction throughout the Old Testament is paired with the Hebrew word for hell, right? So he is connecting it. There's a clue here that this is not just a physical danger, 
but he's saying there's a spiritual danger in my life. We talked about this during confession time in in, uh, our service. Christians are the people who don't say, I've got it all figured out, I'm fine. Christians are the ones who say, I'm in spiritual danger, and I need God to save me. Do you see that? Do you allow the physical danger that you often find yourself in to, to point you to, you know what, there's something more serious? I'm in spiritual danger. I'm separated from God. Do you realize that? Because that's really the ultimate situation that we need rescue from. And so David is tying those things together for us in the psalm. Like I said, I think all good Christian art does that. It takes real-life situations that can be metaphors for even deeper spiritual realities. We find ourselves separated from God. He says, he drew me up. He pulled me up out of that pit and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Towards the end of that sermon, he says, don't be like the man who builds your house on the sand. Be the man who builds your house on the rock. And the rock he is saying in that circumstance is is Jesus himself and his word. Are you trusting in Jesus and his word or are you trusting in the shifting sands of, of culture? And so he says, he set his feet on the rock. And he says in verse three, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And this is where I really get this main point idea, worship tells others. Worship tells others. He's going to use the word tell down in verse 5 as well. I will proclaim and tell others, right? And so in verse 3, he's saying, he put a new song in my mouth. Not just an old song. Old songs are great, right? Biblical worldview is we respect our elders. That means we respect tradition. But biblical worldview is also we always start new things. So again, another tension in the Christian life. Christians like to say, let's do everything new, or let's only do traditional things. But as Christians, we respect tradition, but we're always doing new things. We're always writing new songs. We're always saying the message of hope in Jesus in new ways. And that's our job, wherever God takes us, to say it in a way that makes sense in your circle of influence, in your neighborhood, in your family, with your friends. And that's what God was doing for David. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. One of my favorite quotes is from an African scholar named Laman Sane, and he's comparing Christianity to Islam. Laman Sane says this, the original language of Christianity is translation. The original, the original language of Christianity is translation. What, what does he mean? Well, he's saying some religions are basically saying, come conform to this particular culture, time, and place, and you will be saved. Christianity says culture, time, and place is not what saves you. Jesus is what saves you. So Christianity is an infinitely translatable religion that says don't hope in your language or your custom or your tradition. Hope in Jesus. And so we're constantly translating. We're constantly singing new songs of praise, and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I saw this video a while back of some folks who had translated the Bible for this remote tribe called the Kasua, and they were singing new songs, celebrating having the word of God in their language. It was this beautiful, amazing thing. I'm sorry, we won't have time to watch the video, but they're singing and dancing and celebrating. And you know what? They're not singing and dancing and celebrating the way I was taught in my culture. They're doing it the way they grew up, doing it in their culture. But they're celebrating the translation of the word of God. They now have it in their 
language. They now can understand and glory in who Jesus is. This psalm, Psalm 40, goes on in verses 4 and 5. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. So clarifying that this is the issue, trusting the Lord. That's what gives us a new thing to say and to tell others and to praise and worship God about. It's trusting the Lord. This person does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. This is a hard to translate phrase, but in generalities, what it's talking about is trusting in other powers besides God. We often refer to that as idolatry. And idolatry, you can be overly concrete about it and think that worshiping an idol just means a little gold statue that's on a shelf and you're bowing to a statue physically, concretely. But we can worship anything. We can worship our education. We can worship our spouse. We can worship our money, our retirement account. And we are not to worship those other powers. Those are lies. They can't really save us. Only Jesus can save us. And so we have to guard against that and put our trust in the Lord. That doesn't mean we throw out the good gifts, right? That doesn't mean you throw away your spouse or throw away your job so you won't worship it anymore. It means you turn to Jesus and you allow the expulsive power, Thomas Chalmers said, the expulsive power of this new affection, this new love, Jesus, to push out the competing loves. So it goes on and says, Blessed is a man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And then in verse 5, he says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Another paradox. This thing's full of paradox, right? What's he saying? I will proclaim, but it's more than can be proclaimed. Have you ever felt that? Let me translate this for you a little bit. This is what this looks like in people that I talk to. I, w- I want to talk to my friends about Jesus and about my faith, but I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or I'm afraid they're going to ask a question and I'm not going to know how to answer that. Well, this is the verse for you. This verse says, I'm going to tell. And, and God's going to keep multiplying good things that I can tell. And there's going to be more than I can tell. What he's saying is, yeah, there's no way you're going to be able to tell it all. So just start telling. Tell what you can. One of my favorite preachers who wrote the book, The Reason for God, is is named Tim Keller. Um, And I think he's really good at making the gospel make sense to those that don't believe. And he says, if you want to get better at sharing the gospel with other people, the best way to get better is by doing it badly. Does that make sense? The best way to do it is by doing it badly. The best way to tell others is to tell. And you're going to fail. Or you're going to do it halfway. And that's what the psalmist is saying. There's no way to do it all the way. We're finite creatures. We can't do it perfectly. So so start telling. So here's a particular application. Tell your story. Tell your story of of who God is and what he means to you and and what he's done for you, how you've gotten to understand that Jesus is good. And I would challenge you, even if you're not convinced that Jesus is good, to begin the practice of telling your story with others. Because God is involved in your life. God has made you in his image. And as you share what you can see about who he is and what he's done for you, that's only going to grow you in your ability to see him more. So even when you're not sure, tell what you know and what you've seen. But especially if you're sure, especially if you've seen that he's pulled you out of the miry pit of spiritual destruction, that he's laid your sins on Jesus and he's given Jesus' resurrection life to you, especially you, share your story. Sing that story. Okay, maybe not sing it, but tell your story, right? David's a musician, so musicians sing their story. But tell your story. That's really ultimately what he's saying. It's in context of singing. It's in context of the congregation. And what we do is God's people coming together to sing our story all as one. But, 
but the root of this is telling it. You can start with your close friends that already know your story. They, they may not know the whole story. Tell them more. Tell them details. Practice telling it with your friends, friends that maybe don't know your story at all. Tell them the story of who Jesus is. And remember, there's no way you're going to be able to tell it all, so just tell what you can. Tell what you think. Pray and ask God to get you started. We tell uh, not to force people to change, right? We're, we're not trying to like twist people's arms to get them to see God as good as, as we see him. We're, we're telling because we actually see God as good, right? Because we're actually worshiping him. We're actually saying, oh, he's, he's good. And, and if you see something as good, you enjoy it more when you tell others that it's good. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this. C.S. Lewis says, I think we t- delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So interesting words there. This is C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. C.S. Lewis was wrestling as an agnostic with the idea of how is it okay for God to tell us to praise him? Why is that okay? Well, this is a stretch. It's kind of like a cheesecake saying, you should praise me, right? How do you praise a cheesecake? You eat it. You enjoy it. And then you're like, whoa, I should have started praising this cheesecake a long time ago, right? (laughs) And so it's not ultimately selfish that God would command us to praise him. God is commanding us to enjoy him, right? And so Lewis, like many of us, wrestled with, how is it okay for God to say, praise me, right? It's not okay for a a human to do that, right? If I uh, tell someone to praise me, that's just weird. That's creepy, right? We might say, I have a God complex, right? But God is the ultimate source of joy, and so it's right and good that he would say this. So let me go back to the quote. C.S. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of flattery that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke and not be able to share it. He says, the old catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. These are the same thing. Later on in our generation, Pastor John Piper made much of this. He wrote a book called Desiring God, where he took a lot of these ideas and and amplified them even more. It's the same thing, to, to glorify God and enjoy him. It's the same thing. He says, we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God's inviting us to enjoy him. Even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of craziness. Worship tells others it can't help but spread. The next thing we'll see is that worship reorganizes our life. Worship reorganizes our life, and here are a couple of subpoints. Two ways that it does this. We're going to see this break down in verses 6 through 10. We're going to see in verses 6 through 8 that worship reorganizes our life around heart obedience. Worship reorganizes our life around heart obedience. That's verses 6 through 8. But then verses 9 through 10, we see that worship reorganizes our life around corporate identity. And these things are knit together. They seem to be competing things, right? Um, Out in the religious world, there are some people that see religion as absolutely personal, romantic, individualistic. 
and you probably would focus more on the, the new heart obedience part. But there are also people who see religion as absolutely external and organized and institutional. And that is also organized in this text. There's a new corporate identity we have. We're a part of a new institution called the, the body of Christ, the people of God, his church, his people, the worldwide church of God. So we've got heart obedience and corporate identity, and, and David's going to kind of link these things together. Look at verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your laws within my heart. There's so much here. I could do a whole sermon on just verses six through eight. Um, what's going on here is David, who's a sinner just like you and me, is saying, I've learned to obey you. How did I learn to do that? Because of your, God, because of your grace, God. You put that in my heart. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who says, I used to hate God, but God changed my heart. I saw that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and now I want to follow him. Now I actually want to do what he says. That's what David is describing here. He uses this interesting thing, you have given me an open ear. It's translated in some of the Greek copies of the Old Testament as a body has been prepared. And so what that is, is he digs out your ear, meaning you can't hear him, but he opens your ear up, so now you hear him. Before, I didn't listen to him. I couldn't hear him. I couldn't hear the beautiful song that God was singing to me. But now I can hear him. He's opened up my ear. The way that's translated in the, in the Greek copy, it's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek copy of the Bible. They say, a body you've prepared for me. And that's quoted in Hebrews 10. So this whole section is quoted again in the New Testament and said, really, this is not just about David being taught like you and me to be obedient from the heart. Ultimately, the one that did this absolutely and perfectly is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that every moment did this. Jesus is the one that obeyed for us. So in Christianity, we have this theological concept called um, double imputation. What that means, it's, it's pretty simple. Not only did Jesus pay for your sins, like he took your sins away from you, what else did he do? He gave you his perfect obedience. So that if you trust in God, if you trust in Jesus, God sees you as the perfect obedient son, Jesus himself. He delights in you. He loves you. He likes you, Right? We joke sometimes. It's not that he forgives you, but he's like, yeah, but you really bug me. No, he, he likes you. He delights in you. He loves you. And so this changes how we interact with God. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. This is fulfilled again in Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 9 and 10 talks about this again and again. It quotes this section, but it also talks about um, the new covenant being fulfilled where God's law is no longer over here and we, we can't quite do it. But supernaturally, by the Spirit, His law is now in our heart, right? Like now we actually want to do what God tells us to do. Now He ties us in in verses 9 and 10 with the new corporate identity. We've got this new corporate identity. Look at this, verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, He says, I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Just back to the telling idea. I didn't just keep quiet about it, I told other people. And we got a group together. We built a club of people that are happy that Jesus saved us. I've told of what you've done. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. Right? So now there's this new heart obedience. There's this new private, personal love for God, but you don't hide it. You don't keep it in a corner. It's not just individualism, but it's also a new corporate identity. And so he says... 
I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. The great congregation in our circle, we usually say big church, right? So next couple of weeks, big church is canceled, but we're still a congregation, right? We're still actually gathering this incredible technology we actually have that we can broadcast and gather in our homes. Isn't that amazing? Like that we live in a time where even though we're not gathering, we're still kind of halfway gathering and we can still mourn that we're not doing our normal thing. Of course, it's better face-to-face. And we see that even lived out in the scriptures, right? Paul would talk about that. He would write letters to share his heart and God's word with people that he couldn't see. And he'd say, but I long to see you face-to-face. And as Christians, we have similar reality, right? We can gather online or we can email each other or call each other on the phone or, or text. I know, sorry, young people, you don't call people on the phone. But, you know, we can do things like that. We can communicate in all these new forms of communication and yet still say we long to be together. We long to be together. And so there's this corporate identity where we gather. God's people have always been gatherers. And we, I would say, as modern Christians, need to make sure we don't go all in just with hard obedience, but no corporate identity. Or the other side, we don't want to just go all in with institutional corporate identity without the hard obedience. Those things have to live together. And that's really what he's showing us here that worship reorganizes our life. It's like it rewires us. I got a a wiring diagram here. This is a wiring diagram I can actually understand because it's just a simple switch and light bulb diagram, right? Um, I don't know if you've seen other wiring diagrams like that come with your washing machine. It's taped to the back and you open it up and you're like, oh no, I don't even want to look at that, right? It's so complicated that my brain cannot comprehend it. Um, Well, God is in the business of rewiring us. Romans talks about this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans says that because of God's mercy, we live this new life. We're renewing our mind. We're looking back on his mercy, and then we're offering ourselves in worship, spiritual worship, a living sacrifice. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is talking about. We're constantly renewing our mind, and we're constantly giving ourselves back over to God. And so worship is this ongoing process of giving ourselves back to him, and he's rewiring us through heart worship and corporate worship, right? So I talked about worship reorganizes us with heart obedience and corporate identity. And so practical steps you can take, be a heart worshiper. Be someone who prays. That's, that's our emphasis on prayer during this period. Be someone who prays and loves God and praises God personally in your private prayer closet, as Jesus describes in Matthew 6. But also be someone who gathers with the people of God. Ephesians, Colossians 3, repeat this very clearly, that we actually encourage each other. We have a corporate duty to sing for each other. Singing is between me and God. Singing is also for, for each other. We sing together. And so again, we're, we're missing a bit of that in this gathering, the way we're gathering the next couple of weeks. And I, I pray that this would make us even hungrier to do it more faithfully and more regularly and more robustly when we come back together in live services. And so we see this beautiful rewiring, this beautiful reorganization, God knitting us together as a new people who build habits of personal heart worship and who build habits of great congregation, big church worship together, corporate identity, remembering who we are in Jesus. That's why we worship. We gather around the reality of Jesus's love for us, celebrating that he is the one who ultimately said, here I am, O Lord. I've come to do your will. The last point is that worship works during the worst of times. 
worship works during the worst of times, and we'll end with this last section. It's a long section of verses, um, but not a whole lot of big, crazy ideas here. Just the simple idea that we can be honest with God that we're hurting. That's a really simple idea. And religious people often forget that. But if God is a God of grace, as we said before about lament, then to cry out to him is actually to praise him, to see him as our only hope. So I hope this encourages you to pray and to cry to God. So worship works during the worst of times. We see this in chapter 40, verse 11 through 17. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So good place to start, good foundation. God, I know I can trust your steadfast love. That's basically the Hebrew word for grace and unconditional love. It's chesed in the Hebrew. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then he goes on and he starts describing his lament, his worry, how in some ways this is still the worst of times for him. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Do you have a God that's so gracious and so sovereign that you can be honest with him when everything's falling apart? Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Paul's chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the last and ultimate enemy being death. And Jesus destroyed that by his resurrection. And so when we pray these kind of prayers that God would save us from our enemies, we can pray them asking that he would deliver us from the death we're experiencing right now, but we can also pray it with confidence knowing that he's done it. The decisive blow was dealt when Jesus rose from the dead. And so we are living now, sharing what we have, longing for the completion of that project. So be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Now this is really interesting. Verse 14, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those who be be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. You know people like that who delight in your hurt? Verse 15, let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Um, I don't know the Hebrew word for aha, aha, but I'm trusting the translators here. Verse 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the hope that we have. Again, number one, worship still works during the worst of times. We can still cry out to God. And and I said this earlier at the very beginning of the sermon. For me, just... The worship of singing to the Lord, some of the most glorious, enjoyable, sweet, supernatural times I've ever had of singing to the Lord have been at the darkest and hardest and most rock-bottom times of my life. And that continues to be the case. And that's my prayer for us during all the chaos that's happening right now that we would recognize that this is an opportunity for us to grow as worshipers. The Lord already gifted us with this idea that, hey, why don't we as a church devote ourselves to more private prayer during this time? And guess what? A lot of you are being told, hey, you got to stay home more. Well, I think maybe that's going to give you more time to devote yourself to private prayer. My prayer is that you don't grow your Netflix addiction during this time. 
but that you grow your private prayer life. You grow your ability to worship during the worst of times. Uh, The coronavirus is a weird thing. Again, it's weird because when you look at it from an individualistic framework, if you're young and strong, like the majority of our church, people are like, no big deal, I'm not going to die. You know, everything's fine. But again, we want to encourage you to have a, a community view. And so, as my wife will say, we should always have been washing our hands, right? <laughs> so some of these things are just basic common sense. Yeah, keep washing your hands. Uh, we have some weird things that are going on right now of, of not having as many large gatherings and keeping social distance and, you know... Um, a friend and I were talking the other day, actually someone my, my uh, daughter works with, we, you can do boot taps now, right? You can kick each other softly instead of, you know, shaking hands. There are ways still to greet each other with a holy or medically holy kiss, I guess. Um, and so we have, you know, we have these constraints put on us, um, this difficulty. And in some ways it's bad, but really in some ways this is not the worst of times, right? I don't want to bring a show of hands, but but I guarantee most of you in this room have been through way worse than what we're going through right now. But it is a great time to just pause and reflect and to pray and grow our worship muscles. Just say, okay, even, even during a pandemic, even during social unrest, even during chaos, I can learn as a worshiper. I can grow as a worshiper. We see a great example of how to worship when things are difficult in the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians, the whole book I would recommend to you as a book where he says his whole philosophy of ministry is serving others out of his own brokenness. And so as Christians, we don't just wait until everything is perfect and tidied up before we tell others about how good God is. As Christians, we don't wait until everything is perfect and then start worshiping God. We worship God in the chaos. We worship God even during the worst of times. So Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Long, very religious sounding phrase there, right? He's saying, God, supernaturally put a flashlight in my heart, going back to the heart obedience we saw in Psalm 40, He lit up my heart, so now I see glory in the face of Jesus. Do you see the goodness of Jesus? And even in the worst of times, we can see that. Sometimes, maybe better in the worst of times. Because the darkness veils the competing saviors that aren't really real, that won't really save us, so that we can more clearly see that Jesus is the real Savior. So Paul expresses how this, this light on the glory of Jesus has erupted in his own heart. And he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, right? So we're still broken. You and I still have disease. Whether we're young or old, we're all dying. We are mortal. We live in the flesh. It is weak. And so we're trusting in the resurrection power of Jesus. I've often liked to joke, um, and I, I hesitate to even make this joke during the current panic, but I think it's an important real thing to say. We are all dying, right? We are all dying. We're dying at different speeds. And our time on this earth, while we're dying, is to spend ourselves for God's glory, to love him and to love our neighbors. So God's given you one life. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to spend that life? Paul says he's given us this, this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God, but it doesn't belong to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, 
but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It's the paradox. We're, we're a dying people who show the hope, the treasure, and these broken jars of clay show the hope of the triumph of Jesus. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the death is at work in us, but life in you. What he's saying is, and all of humanity is dying. And as Christian sufferers who know that we're all dying, we we take whatever we got and we share it for others so that others can have the supernatural resurrection life that we already have. And that's what we're hoping in. We're not hoping in, in perfect health in this world. We're hoping in the resurrection life that Jesus grants us. So to wrap up, I just want to wrap up with one of my favorite verses. If you're a regular at our church, I'm sorry. You've heard me say this a million times. But Zephaniah 3.17 gives us this beautiful picture of why we sing, why we worship. Zephaniah 3.17 says that our God is a mighty warrior who is with us. He's a mighty one who can save. So it's magnifying his strength and his sovereignty, but it also magnifies his closeness and his love for us. It says he will quiet us with his love. He will rejoice over us with loud singing. So don't forget this. The God of the universe sings over you. And that song is seen most clearly the number one song where you can hear him singing is Jesus Christ who came for you, who gave his life for you and gives you his resurrection power. And because he sings over us in love and in joy, we can sing back to him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We pray during this time of just craziness that, that this would be a great time for us to grow in, in remembering your love, your goodness, your grace. God, help us to see that. Help us to remember it. Help us to rejoice in it, to worship you. God, help us to worship you in the chaos. And God, help us to be a blessing. As we worship you, again, Father, that we wouldn't be the kind of people that say, there's no chaos, but we would be the kind of people that bring hope and joy and love in the midst of us. Help us to love our neighbors. Lord, I pray this week that you give us specific um, eyes to see concrete things we can do to bless and encourage those around us. God, use us to spread your joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.